0: to or insignificant compared to what somebody else might be called to do. But the truth of the matter is God has called us all to be faithful in whatever he's put in front of us. Amen? So maybe, maybe God has called you to leave the country and be a missionary overseas. Maybe God has called you into full-time ministry like he has myself. But as I look around this room, you know what I know? That is a very small percentage Instead, God has put us in the place that he has put us so that we might be faithful to him with those that we encounter on a daily basis, with those that uh, are in our lives, that we could be an example for them of who Christ is, what Christ does, and what the gospel can do and accomplish for God's glory. That is our job as followers of Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to be an example. As we look to the scriptures, the scriptures are also filled with examples. As we turn the pages of scripture, we find all kinds of examples. We see examples of ones that we know we should be like. You just turn a few pages in Genesis and you get to Abraham and we can know for sure that, that Abraham is an example of faith and that we should have Faith like Abraham, you turn a few more pages into a couple more books and and you get to David and the way that David stood up to the giant. And you think, man, that is an example of faith that he believed that God would do something amazing in that moment. And so we see that example and it's something that we know we could do. Then we also look at the Bible and we find all kinds of examples of things we shouldn't do, right? Right? So my mind goes, as we've been in the book of Luke and we're talking about the Gospels and the life of Jesus, my mind goes to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are often set up as an example of what we should not do, right? Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones. Don't be like them, right? I think also, like, as the church was beginning, one of the first things we see is the example of don't be like Ananias and Sapphira, right, who lied to God who lied to the apostles, and it did not go well for them, right? So when we look at these examples, some of them are set up as examples of things that we should do, that we should emulate, while others throughout Scripture are examples of, that just show us what, what faithfulness looks like. This is what a faithful person looks like. Or, don't be like this guy, this is an example of what disobedience looks like. Now, examples are also used in another way. Sometimes we see that examples are, are held up as ideals, ideals. These examples are lifted up as possibilities to strive for, uh, but maybe, maybe not like this is going to happen to you. So I just think about the example of Peter walking on water, okay? So what, we, what should we emulate? What example is Peter setting for us? Well, he is setting the example of what faith in Jesus is. He stepped out of the boat, and he walked on water. His example is in his faith in Jesus. That he, but when Jesus said, come, he said, okay, and he got out of the boat and took a few steps on the water. What a great example. Now, here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to think that our faith isn't genuine because we don't walk on water, right? So the ideal is set up of what genuine faith is, walking on water. But perhaps in everyday life, in everyday life, we don't teach, we don't say that real faith means you walk on water. Does, the, does that make sense? Are you following where I'm going? That this is an ideal that's set up that encourages us to what an example of faith should and could be. Today, as we uh, move out of Luke chapter 6 and we move into Luke chapter 7, we're going to look at the story of the faith of the centurion. And as we look at this story of the the faith of the centurion, we're going to see a great example of a heart that amazes Jesus. We're going to see the example of a heart that amazes Jesus. And a heart that amazes Jesus is humble. It submits to his authority And it is a heart that believes earnestly. So it's a humble heart, submits to Christ's authority, and believes earnestly. So as we look at our text, I want you to keep our eyes on the heart of the centurion and not necessarily the procedures of what he does. So as we look at this example, we don't need to walk on water to follow his example. Okay, we don't need to do exactly what the centurion does to follow his example. What I want you to do as we read this passage is focus on his heart because this is a heart that amazes Jesus. Let's dive into the text. Let's read Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It says this. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick. And at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, earnestly saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that follow him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when the crowd and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, like I said a minute ago, I I don't know that the method that the centurion uses should be seen as a method that we need to employ when uh, coming to Jesus with a request, all right? We don't need to send a delegation of associates to Jesus before us to make this request. Then we don't need to send a second delegation to Jesus and say, uh, never mind, we're, we're unworthy for you to come, Okay? The example that the centurion sets is not in his procedure but in his heart and in his attitude as he shows us a heart of humility, a heart of submission to Jesus' authority, and as he makes the request of Jesus with boldness and great faith. Now, the passage begins with a transition that moves us away from the Sermon on the Plain that we've been in for the last several weeks going back before Christmas and then into the story of Jesus' ministry. So let's look at how it begins. It begins like this in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, all the teachings of the Sermon on the Plain, in the hearing of the people, that crowd, some of them which are still following him, he entered Capernaum. So what we get to see is Jesus move out of the theoretical teaching. So as we talk through the Sermon on the Plain, a lot of that was, was just this, uh, it, it, we call it theoretical versus Practical. So he's telling them what they should do, how it should be. Now as we move out of the Sermon on the Plain, what we begin to see is Jesus puts what he just taught them into action. He's living out the teaching that he taught them. So not only is this supposed to be some teaching that we do here in our mind, it is supposed to be a teaching that that we live out in our everyday lives. So let's think through the Sermon on the Plain. One of these things that we saw throughout Luke chapter 6. We saw that Jesus taught that we should treat people the way we want to be treated. We saw that Jesus doesn't measure blessing the blessings of God through earthly wealth or circumstance. We saw back in, in Luke 6 that Jesus wants us to love him, love others, And make sure that the grace and mercy that we have received is lived out and reflected in the way that we treat the people around us. One of the key lessons that we learned as we went through Luke chapter 6 is that we need to love our enemy, right? We need to love our enemy, and we need to treat those who abuse or mistreat us with grace. So when we look at our passage, we get to see that Jesus immediately begins to live out this teaching. All right, the passage continues. Verse two. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Now, these verses do something for us. They they, uh, establish for us what the problem is in the text, and also they describe for us the setting of the text. So, so what is the problem? There is a valued servant who has become ill and needs to be healed. Now, what's the setting? There is a centurion. Now, what's a centurion? Uh, The word century cent, cent which means 100 okay he is a commander over 100 roman soldiers this guy is a gentile roman commander okay so the setting is a gentile roman authority appeals to jesus a jewish rabbi for help Chew on that for a second. A Gentile Roman authority appeals to Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, for help. This is an odd social situation. Okay? The Romans were the occupying force. They were by all accounts the enemies of the Jews, right? I mean, they were the enemies of the Jews. Yet what we see here in our passage is that the occupier, the oppressor, reached out to the conquered, and the oppressed for help. Now, may, maybe that's to be expected in one sense, right? Because as the one who has the power, they could come in and demand the help, right? So they have the power, the authority. If they need food, if they need supplies, they can acquisition them as needed. They could come in with power and, and take it. But, but that's not what happens here. The centurion does not use his power for his own adva- advantage, Instead, we see that his actions have endeared him to the local Jewish community. And rather than the centurion intimidating Jesus, we see that Jewish leaders of the town actually came to the centurion's aid, presumably without being forced to. Isn't that interesting? Now, at this point, all social expectation is out the window. The the elders of the town, these are the Jewish community leaders appealed to Jesus for help on behalf of this Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion is a Gentile leader in the community. Now now what do we learn from the fact that these elders came to Jesus on behalf of the centurion? You would think that the, uh, that the centurion would just summon Jesus, right? So he's got all this power. Wouldn't he just send a, a squad of soldiers? to inform Jesus of this meeting that he has with the centurion. That's what you would think would happen. But what happens instead? He calls in a favor from the Jewish elders. He says, hey guys, come here. I need you to go talk to Jesus for me. He could have sent a squad of soldiers to make him come. Instead, he he calls in a favor with the local Jewish authorities and says, hey, would you go to Jesus for me? And they seem to be glad to do this. And so they go to Jesus and have a conversation with him in a Jew-to-Jew situation, which would have been a far less intimidating and also for the Jewish community a far more socially appropriate way for this to have gone down, for another Jew in the community to come and greet a rabbi in the town and say, hey, here, here's what's going on. We need your help. So he could have come in power. Instead, what we see him do is call in a favor and go and approach Jesus through these Jewish elders in the community. This is the first glimpse that we get to see into the heart of the centurion. He has a heart of humility. Alright, so so why did Jesus come? Why did he show up? Luke has told us several times throughout the book so far that that word was going out all over um, uh, Judea and Galilee about what Jesus had done. So why did this Roman centurion reach out to Jesus and call him? Well, it's, it's because all these rumors were going around about the miracles of Jesus. And Luke tells us the centurion heard about these miracles that he had performed. And, and who knows? Maybe some of those, well, we do know that some of those miracles happened right there in Capernaum. Maybe these miracles were done for people that this centurion knew. All right, but no matter what, no matter the, the circumstances beyond, what, what we do know is that this centurion seems to believe what he had heard about Jesus, all right? And he believed it so much that he acts in a way that is consistent with his belief. Now, I want you to to chew on that phrase because it's going to show back up later as we talk about this. He believed who Jesus was so much that his actions were consistent with his belief. Clearly, the centurion believed that Jesus was something special. How do we know that? Because he called in a favor, I believe, with the local Jews to send someone else because he didn't see himself as worthy. He he saw himself as low and so he called in a favor that somebody else could do it. And by calling somebody else in, he shows respect for Jesus' customs. Now just, just think about this. How would you, how would I Treat Jesus if he was coming into my neighborhood and I needed his help. Now, if I believed who he was, if I believed that he really was this miracle worker, if I believed he was someone special, then I would treat him with respect. I would treat him with dignity, right? I would come to him on Jesus' terms, not on my terms, because I need something from this guy. I need something from him, and I believe he has the power to do it. So I'm not going to come to him with some cavalier attitude. Hey, yo, Jesus, come here. I I got something for you to do, right? Like that takes for granted who Jesus was. What we see in the example of this centurion is he he understood who Jesus was. And so he comes to him in a way that that is fitting with his belief. This guy's a miracle. This guy is powerful. This guy can do something great. Who am I but just some grunt officer in the Roman military? I'm so insignificant. I don't matter compared to the greatness of this miracle worker. So he sends somebody else to go to Jesus on his behalf. He believed, and that belief fueled his humility. Let's continue in the passage, starting in verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded, and who's the day? That's the Jewish elders. They pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is what? What's the word? Worthy. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. Look at that word, worthy. These Jewish elders said that their their national enemy is worthy of Jesus to come and do this for him. What a strong word. It implies that Jesus should help him, that he's worth helping. The Jewish leaders in Capernaum recognized that this Roman was different from other Romans. They even say that he loved their nation. How odd of an occupying officer to say he loved the nation. But he was so in to that community and so considerate that this Roman centurion built the synagogue where they worshipped. He was even engaged in the religious life of the community. Interesting side note, interesting side note, there is some ruins in Capernaum of the Jewish synagogue that date from either the 3rd or the 4th century, and that synagogue was built on the previous synagogue's foundation, which is probably the foundation that this guy commissioned So I just think that's neat. That's for free. You can do with it what you want, all right? So this this word worthy here seems to imply a perceived sense of human righteousness in this centurion. He's a Gentile. He's an occupying enemy, yet there's almost a fondness for this man bordering on loyalty. So they pleaded with Jesus earnestly. This shows that these people had real compassion for the centurion and his servants. There was a real connection, and the people seemed to, to really have trusted him. Now, now, what I love about this part of the story is that, that the elders share the centurion's resume with Jesus. And my opinion here, this is, this is a way these elder, the way these elders talk about the centurion, is to show us that they weren't coerced into it. All right, The way I read this is that they were asked by the centurion to help, and then they were glad to help. So again, why would these elders want to help this guy out? Now, I'm going to all this trouble. I'm I'm trying to pack this scene in for you. I could just say, I could just say the words, he was humble. I could just say it, right? I mean, that's one of the first things I did is I said he was humble. But I want you to get it. Like, his humility was a part of who he was. It impacted the way that he acted. He believed this about Jesus, and it changed the way he behaved. Now, all right, we're going to come back. Maybe we won't come back to this. I'll just take the aside right now. I want you to think about what we've been talking about as we've been moving through uh, Luke chapter 6, as we talked about the Sermon on the Plain and all the ways that Jesus was encouraging his followers to live. If you believe it, you do it. If you really believe it, it's going to change the way you live. And what I want you guys to see is this guy was a kind and humble man and he believed that Jesus had the power to heal and he acted on that belief. When he had the power and when he had the authority, he still came in humility because he believed who Jesus was and the people around him believed it as well. And so they came to Jesus. And what's it say in verse 6, the beginning of verse 6? They made their case, and Jesus went with them. They, They made their case, and Jesus went with them. Jesus is clearly moved. Luke shows us that a fundamental part of being a disciple is loving your enemy. So here the elders have connected with and are showing compassion for their occupier. And that should be encouraged. They were loving their enemy. And then what we see is Jesus loves his enemy as he goes with them to heal this centurion's servant. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus rarely does miracles for Gentiles. Now, it happens, but they aren't normal. But if we were to take the time, we could go back to Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 27, and read about what Jesus says he's going to do for the Gentiles. Now, back in chapter 4, Jesus was preaching in his hometown of Nazareth. All right? And he made the Jews in his hometown of Nazareth so mad. Do you remember how mad he made them? They wanted to kill him, right? They were going to kill him. Now, how did he make them mad? He made them mad by telling them about God's work in Gentile places. That that during the time of Elisha, God healed Naaman of leprosy. And Naaman was a Gentile. Okay, There were other lepers in the Jewish community, but God healed Naaman. He also, in that same passage, references Elijah. And God, throughout this whole famine that was affecting all the Jews, God sustained the widow of Zarephath, who was a Gentile. Now what do we see? Coming right out of the Sermon on the Plain, what do we see Jesus do? He is breaking down social barriers. He is showing us that he's bringing the gospel to places that we wouldn't necessarily expect, places that might be considered uh, taboo or socially inappropriate. As we move past Luke 4, we see that Jesus touched a person with leprosy, that he ate with tax collectors and sinners, that he healed on the Sabbath, that he was on his way now in chapter 7 to a Gentile's house. What do we see about Jesus? He is living out the things that he was teaching. So how does our passage go on? Our passage goes on. It says, When he was not far from the house, Jesus, not far from the centurion's house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, this time, he sends friends. Before, he sent Jewish elders. This time, he probably sends his Gentile friends. He doesn't say they were Gentiles. I think that's implied. All right, he says, don't trouble yourself. Now, why would he say don't trouble himself? Because coming into a Gentile's house would make him ceremonially unclean. He says, don't trouble yourself. Don't trouble yourself. I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy for you to come to my house. Now, what did the elders say about him? He was worthy. What does he say about himself? He is unworthy. We're supposed to see that contrast. We're supposed to see it. This guy is humble. He's lowering himself. He calls himself unworthy. And he lowers himself before Jesus. And the centurion continues in verse 7. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, this is where we see the humility take the next steps. This a Roman centurion, a man with Clear authority does not presume upon a Jewish peasant. Does that make any sense? Okay, do we see what's going on here? Again, what do we see? He believes that Jesus is more than a Jewish peasant. And so we see him living out his belief. And we also see an example here of tremendous trust. What makes this guy think? that Jesus could heal his servant from a distance. Why does he think that? Now, we know that he's heard about these uh, rumors that have gone around Galilee uh, about Jesus healing people. And I would say that as the, the Roman centurion in the town, it's probable that he even investigated some of those rumors. But the text doesn't tell us Uh, uh, that, that he did investigate. But what it does tell us is that he built him a synagogue. What's that mean? This is a guy who had his finger on the pulse of the religious community. So no matter how he came to it, this centurion believes, and his belief ties his faith to humility. He believes that Jesus can heal, so he sets aside his power and his dignity, and he trusted that somebody else could do the thing that he could not do himself. Now, just think about that. This is a guy of power, a guy who came to his position of authority probably through hard work and determination. And what he says by deferring to Jesus is, I trust somebody else to do what I can't do myself. Now, this humility points to the second mark of the centurion's heart. Here we see the centurion uh, make his request, but he submits to the authority of Jesus. He submits to the authority of Jesus. The centurion believes that all Jesus has to do is say the word, and his servant will be healed. Then he uh, appeals to the chain of command in the military, right? Like, what's his defense for thinking this would happen? Well, he appeals to the chain of command in the military. And this appeal does two things, all right? First, by coming to Jesus, the centurion is placing himself below Jesus in the chain of command. He's placed himself below Jesus in the chain of command. Secondly, the, the exclamation point to his submission is the fact that he's placing his servant's illness under the chain of command and authority of Jesus, so he says, I tell this guy to do this, and he doesn't. He says, you just tell that illness to go away, and it will. He submits to Jesus' authority, placing himself under Jesus' command, and then he submits this illness under Jesus' authority as well. The centurion says, Jesus, just give the order, and my servant will be healed. Now this brings us to the third way that the heart of this centurion amazes Jesus. This centurion had great faith. How's our passage end? Our passage ends like this? When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. He was amazed, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, "I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith." So think about all the miracles he'd done. And none of those people had the faith that this centurion had. And when those who had been sent, his friends, maybe the elders, returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, what I love is Jesus didn't even give the order. Isn't that cool? Like what the the centurion had to say, do this, and they do it. Jesus says, that's some faith, and leaves, and they go home, And he's better. How much authority does Jesus have? He doesn't even have to give the command. That's so cool. I love that. All right, now, what I also love in this passage is that Jesus and the centurion never talked. You realize that? Like, throughout this whole thing, they never met, there's no face to face. They they never had an interaction with each other. It was the Jewish elders first, and then the centurion's friends that came. Every word we get from the centurion comes through a messenger. So not only did they not meet, he didn't even ask Jesus to to, uh, uh, come into his house. He said, don't come. You don't need to touch him. You don't need to touch him. So this is a pretty unique miracle. It was was a miracle that was done through an intermediary, and it was a miracle that was done at a distance. That's pretty cool. We don't see many miracles like this at all in Scripture. They never saw each other. Later, uh, in, in the Gospel of John, okay, so we're in a different gospel, and it was later in the ministry of Jesus. After Jesus had died and risen from the dead, Thomas, we know this, Thomas is the doubter, Thomas doubted that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. But then Jesus appeared to Thomas, and Thomas believed. He appeared to him, and then he believed. And Jesus said this in John chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. What do we see in the life of the centurion? He is somebody who did not see and yet believed. That is a powerful testimony of faith. Now here's what I want you to see from this story. And this is something we've already talked about. I'm going to hit on it again. The centurion believed. He believed in the power and the authority of Jesus for the healing of his favored servant. And that faith impacted his actions. Because he believed, he came to Jesus with humility. Because he believed, he submitted to Jesus' authority. Because he He believed his faith changed his actions. This passage does not provide a formulaic approach of how we get what we want from Jesus. This passage shows us a powerful example of how our faith impacts our heart and our actions. If we really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, If we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, if we really believe that the miracles of Scripture are real, then it should impact the way we approach Him. If we really believe Jesus is who He said He was, it should impact the way we approach Him. Now, scripture is filled with invitations to come boldly to the throne of God. One of my favorite comes from Hebrews chapter 4. It says this Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What does the author of Hebrews tell us to do? To come forward with confidence. We should have confidence as we come forward, but that confidence is not in ourself, but what? In the grace that we may receive and that we may receive His mercy. In our time of need, it's confidence in Jesus that we're invited because of Jesus and that He has the power there. This confidence isn't in ourselves, it's in Him. Listen to what uh, John says in 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears it. And if we Man, I am losing my eyes. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So how does he tell us to come? To come with confidence. Confidence according to what? His will. We are supposed to have confidence as we come to Jesus. But we should have confidence in who he is. And because of who he is and the greatness of God and the grace and the mercy that he has poured out on us, we know that we can come into his presence. But we should also have humility and submit to his authority. How does John tell us to pray? In accordance with his will. What does the author of Hebrews tell us? That we are coming for grace and for mercy. Who is in control in both of these situations? It is God. So, yes, we come boldly. We come boldly, but we come lowly, waiting for Him to lift us up. We don't come in our own strength, tooting our own horn. We come understanding who He is, with a recognition that He loves us and extends His grace to us. How can we be humble in the presence of God? Because He is a God of mercy and grace. And if we think we need anything but mercy and grace from God, we think too much of ourselves. So we come to him in the confidence of Jesus Christ, that he was, as it says in Hebrews, from above and descended down to earth, right? Our confidence is not in us, but in Christ. As that centurion came to the, uh, uh, sent his his messengers to Jesus, he comes with confidence not in himself, but confidence that Jesus is can heal his servant. So what is our response to this? What do we do with this? We have to be challenged to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves because we believe. We don't have to talk him into anything. We don't have to do some crazy formula. What he wants from us is our belief, and that belief should drive us to humility a humble heart, and that humble heart is one of submission. Trusting, trusting that our Father in Heaven knows what needs to be done. He is a God of authority. He has the means and ability to carry it out. Do we believe He is who He says He is? If we believe He is who He says He is, then it should change the way we live and act, and even the way we approach Him. This centurion is a great example of what it is to approach a God of authority in humility and submission. As the praise team comes, let's let's, uh, uh, remember that, that as we go into this time, this is a time of reflection. How are we going to respond? Have we come to God in a cavalier way? Have we taken him for granted? Have we been proud in the way that we come to Christ? If that's the case, then this is an opportunity to repent and to turn and just say, Lord, I'm sorry for the way I've taken you for granted. You, I believe you are who you say you are. Help me come to you in humility. Would you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you're going to do. Father, we love you and we praise your name. Lord, we ask that you, uh, you guide our steps, that you convict our hearts. How have we been arrogant? How have we relied on our own strength? Help us, Lord, to walk forward in humility and submission to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.